Hello, and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Friedrich, and today I'm honored to have Christine Handy with me. Christine is a mother, an author, cancer survivor, and she's relentless in her pursuit of becoming the best version of herself. So Christine, thanks so much for being on today. Oh, thank you for having me. Yes. So to kick off your story, uh, not unlike a lot of people where there's some things in our childhood that get our story started, but my childhood did not have any modeling uh, applications getting sent my way. So at 11 years old, you start receiving some modeling, uh, we'll just say brochures or flyers, and yeah, you see your point. mom do something with those. So talk a little bit about that. Wow. You did your research. <laughs> <laughs> um, my mom would throw them away because I had three other sisters at home. And yeah. why would she want one of the daughters to be highlighted in a certain industry, especially something that's dependent on your external value? Yeah. She wanted everybody to be kind of, um, you know, measured the same. And I totally respect that. I have two sons and I, I understand that. But as a child, I did not understand that. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, talk a little bit about that. You know, it was something that you were kind of excited about. Um, but at the same token, it was at, for a little bit taken away from you. So yeah. how did that impact, you know, the way you viewed competition within sisters and parenting and things like that? That's a very good question. You know, I, many people I've been interviewed by, nobody's asked that. And I, it's such a great question. Um, you know, it, it, I think I developed a sense of shame mm. in my life and yeah. I'm not blaming this on anybody, but I think there's some shame within the industry modeling industry. Yeah. Um, and I think that that started off a little bit of a shame, like, well, if I want to be a model, what's wrong with that? Mm. And if that's really what I want to do, that's something wrong with me. Yeah. And so when you get into that industry, it's it's really apparent that it's very transactional. So a photographer might say to me, if you do this free shoot for me, I'll do this, get you this other client for you. And so that was a little bit shameful in a sense where I was like, oh, well, I have to do this for him or he won't do this for me. Mm. And so I think I developed this shame in my life, which I took, I carried with me for a very long time. Yeah. And, and now I, I have none of that. Yes. Well, eventually, as you kind of hinted at, your your mom relents and she says, all right, you can pursue this modeling thing. So talk about getting started in that world and some of the uh, clientele that you start working for. Yeah, so I started at a young age and I think by the time I was 16, well, you have to have a chaperone until you're 16. And so my mom had to take me around and she was busy yeah. with my other sisters and she was a stay-at-home mom and my dad was very uh, expected a lot and fresh meals and, you know, warm meals at night. And so by the time I was 16, I was just so ready to just work on my own and just to fly in the industry and just take as many jobs as I could. And I was doing really well in school. And so I didn't have a problem juggling the homework and the modeling jobs. I just, I got it, I got it done, which if you look at my life, that would be no surprise to anybody. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm pretty a type A personality and I'm, <laughs> I mean, I go to Harvard right now. So I, and I'm like a straight A student. Yeah. So, so I think that that, you know, that kind of gave me kind of my, my boost once I developed, you know, when I got my driver's license. And then after that, I was working for JCPenney was kind of my bread and butter and Dillard's and Neiman Marcus and, you know, those types of stores, Macy's. And I was particularly 
good at lingerie and bathing suits. And so back then we had newspapers. And so the last page of the newspaper, you would see me in, you know, bras and underwear. Yeah. And so to go from, well, I won't, I guess I won't jump towards, I'll let you go. <laughs> and jump no. on no, you're okay. So thinking about that, you know, I think anyone that's in their teenage years, you're going through tough things the way it is, right? You're trying to figure out your identity, who you are, gain confidence. You're, there's probably a part of you that has confidence because you're getting these opportunities, but you're also held to a much higher standard uh, right. because you, this is a profession, this is a career. And you mentioned that you went to a Pepsi shoot and this was one of the first times that you started to think about your body in a way of like, okay, is it, does it look okay? So talk a bit about that for you. So I think by the time I went, I was working some for Pepsi, which is a big brand. Yeah. And I think by the time I was working for Pepsi, I, I had already developed an eating disorder. Hmm. And I personally, my eating disorder became something that I could control and also something that stemmed from a very low self-esteem. Hmm. Most of the models that I worked with, looking back, have very low self-esteem. Yeah. And so, and we can talk about that as well. But when, so when I started working for Pepsi, they had a bathing suit that they wanted me to wear. And it was a white bathing suit. And they had Pepsi written on the, from um, vertically. And so at this point, you know, I was thin and I was being measured and I had to be exactly like my comp card, which is kind of our uh, resume for being a model. Yeah. And so I was on this shoot and the, one of the assistants said, here's your first wardrobe change. I go into the, the, well, the wardrobe area and I put this bathing suit on and I realized that my breasts have like blossomed and I'm like, and this, the bathing suit's tight. And I'm like trying to squish my breasts in there. And I'm like, Oh, like what happened? I've starved myself, but this process is, this process won't stop. And so that was kind of my first kind of panic with, I have to control this more. I, and, and then I think I got more involved in the, uh, in the um, eating disorder. Yeah. Now you talked about, you know, a lot of people have, you know, lower confidence or, you know, self-esteem on that. And it was interesting. I had Peter Hurley on the show and he does, uh, he was a model himself and they, now he's a big photographer and he was shooting a, a Miss America winner. And she goes, Oh, I don't like the way I look. And he goes, if you don't like the way you look, how is anyone going to like the way they look, right? I mean, you are, right. you are Miss America. <laughs> right. you know, the, a whole panel has elected you to be one of the most gorgeous people in, in the right. entire United States. So talk a little bit about that, it, whether it's, you know, hey, the lack of confidence or self-esteem comes from maybe what we're putting our value in, right? Hey, I'm valuing myself as a model instead of all the other, you know, characteristics that make me who I am. But talk about that for you. So I wasn't developing any internal muscles. I wasn't yeah. developing any self-awareness or self, mm. um, self-care. Yeah. I was, my, my self-care was making sure my hair color was right, making sure I was thin enough, making sure I fit into the clothes, making sure I was kissing the ass of the clients and making sure my, I was bringing cookies to my modeling agent, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, and developing relationships like that. But again, it was very transactional. Yeah. But that's what I thought. That's how I thought the world worked. And so when I was, it, I mean, certainly that worked for a while until it didn't, right? And then th there came a point in my my career where I, I that came back to that shame as well, where I said to myself, "I'm just a model." Because mm -hmm. people would say to me, people would say to me, "Where do you go to school?" And I, I mean, I went to university, but they'd say, "Oh, well, she." I could hear them that she would they would say, "Oh, she's just a model," 
And so that kind of got into my psyche. I was listening to other people who, who dismissed how hard modeling was. Yeah. So then that shame came back like fully full blown. And then I thought to myself, well, I'll be nothing but a model. Wow. And then I didn't aspire for many, many, many years to do anything else because I felt like I was just a model. Mm. I think that happens as mother too often, maybe not so much now, but yeah. if, if you're a mom and you get asked, what do you do? And, and you say, well, I'm a, I'm, I'm a stay-at-home mom. That used to be very dismissed, right? I don't think uh, it is. It shouldn't be because it's the hardest job in the world. <laughs> yes. And I'm not saying that modeling is the hardest job in the world at all, but it's hard. Yeah. And it's a lot of self-governance, but I, I wasn't working on the inside of me. I was solely working on the transactional part of me and also the external value that I would carry. Yeah. Now, as your modeling career is progressing, uh, you continue to get the opportunity to work with a lot of big names. Was there any pivotal connections or, you know, people that helped open doors or was it really the resume that you had just continuously, you know, built that eventually, you know, other brands and companies took notice and that gave you opportunity? I mean, I had a great agent. I had, yeah. I, I've loved my, all of my agents I've ever had, but, and they pushed all the women, right? They pushed all the models, but I, it was never enough for me. Mm. Whatever client I got, it was never enough. I was always searching or reaching for the next bigger client. Yeah. And so I guess when I became a guest model and I also did a, a Bud Light thing that was, um, it got a lot of airtime. Okay. And I, at those two things I really liked because it made me feel like I accomplished something mm -hmm. because I was just that model. And so when I flew out to LA and, you know, from Dallas and I was the guest model, I was like, okay, now I've really come into my own, in my own career, but that wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. And so, but it was shortly after that, where I actually stopped modeling because I was raising my children and I didn't come back to it to many years later. But it was a really good thing that I stopped because I was never satiated by it. Yeah. I, had to, I had to keep finding something bigger and better because I it wasn't sustaining me. My, yeah. my self-esteem wasn't built on self-confidence. It was mm. built on transaction. Yeah. Well, I want to dive into that for a minute. So I think part of that is healthy, right? A lot of the people that have reached pinnacles in their fields get there because they don't, you know, become yeah. satisfied by the first opportunity. At the same token, it can be slightly unhealthy when we are constantly searching for the next thing and we're not taking any joy or fulfillment out of what we've already accomplished. So reflecting back on that for you and then where you're at today, um, and we'll talk how we get there, but talk about a little bit, you know, finding joy and fulfillment in something and not constantly just being on the search for the next thing. I never felt, I don't think I ever felt pure joy until I was diagnosed with cancer and after cancer. And the reason is because all of those things were fleeting. Mm. Like the external value that ultimately was stripped away was fleeting. Yeah. The materialism that I, that I ascribed to was fleeting. Because anything that we worship, anything we focus on that can be taken away, you can't build a foundation on that. It's quicksand. So and so, but those things were idols in my life. I had a lot yeah. of false idols. And when I shifted my life to serving and a life of altruism, I started to feel joy, even though at this point, my lost my beauty yeah. and I lost, I had a fused arm and I was in constant pain, constant physical pain. And I'd gone through obviously tremendous emotional pain, yeah. 
Yeah. And, and to feel joy after those things, it made me realize like, I have to share this because I don't want people to go through what I went through searching and seeking and, and, and all this transactional life and, or, and, and to go to bed at night lonely because that stuff doesn't keep you warm at night. Those bags that I covet, I could no longer care because my arm was fused, right? Right. And I, I kept reminding myself, like, well, who are you inside? I had no idea at that point. Yeah. You know, I'm literally going through chemotherapy and going, everything that I thought I was was my value is gone. Everything. Yeah. Nobody will love me. Mm. And, and it was in those dark moments where I finally just said, okay, what do you like? What do you, who are you? Where I just started to do this massive introspection where I finally came out going, I've done this wrong. Yeah. And, and the person I am is in here and I'm going to, I'm going to find her and I'm going to propel her. I'm going to cheer her on and I'm going to give her a voice and I'm going to write a book and I'm going to share the story. And I'm going to, you know, all these things that were like, oh my gosh, I can change people's <laughs> lives because I did this so wrong. Yeah. But it takes a lot of vulnerability and courage to change. Like so many of us, including myself, want to stay stuck in that mud, stuck in that victim mode. Yeah. But when, but when you decide you want to be a vine instead of a victim, mm. a massive amount of opportunities open up and they're totally different than the ones that you've had. But those are the ones that fill you with joy. Yeah. Well, and to that point, I think sometimes you don't even feel stuck because you're getting so much outward validation, right? About, you know, some job you're doing or some task that you're really good at that you don't even feel the need to introspectively deep dive, right? You're like, well, I'm getting all this validation. Like it must be a pretty good person. I must be doing things right. And you're doing something really well, but there's this whole other person, right? Or there's more to you than just the job that you're doing or the relationship you're in, whatever that might be. That is correct. And, but there were too many nights where I'd go to bed thinking there's some massive hole that's missing. Mm, I couldn't figure out what that was because from the outside perspective, I had the perfect life. Yeah. I lived on the right street. I had the right, I I looked the right part, right? I had, I had the finances and and I just was like, why am I so empty? Why is this not sustaining me? And it was ultimately illness after illness after illness and just getting flooded with fire in my life where I finally said, okay, I can't, I can't go back to that emptiness. Something is something, something needs to shift. Absolutely. So to that point, we'll segue there. Um, So we'll start the health journey off with the wrist, Uh, Mm. something that seemingly you thought was going to be a simple task, a simple fix, but ends up being like an 18 month process and then a forever thing. So talk a bit about, uh, you know, that that piece of the pie. Well, I'll try to make it a condensed version because it really is. It's the first 200 pages of my book. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And my arm, I had a torn ligament in my right wrist and I went to see three doctors in Dallas. I picked the Stanford grad. He had the right pedigree. He gave me the right answers. He performs the surgery. And six weeks later, they take off the cast and they say to me, okay, go home and do some exercises on your wrist. And I did gently. Um, That was on a Friday. By Sunday, my arm was completely ballooned. And what I mean was my arm, my right arm looked like my thigh bone. It was the growth, the the swelling was grotesque and the pain yeah. was even worse. Mm. And so I called my doctor on a Sunday, which by the way, I was a bit ashamed to do because I was taught as a woman that to respect authority and to call somebody on a Sunday was not acceptable. Mm. So it's already that shame came back immediately. Yeah. 
And, and so I called him on a Sunday and he told me that I over iced my arm. Okay. I didn't go to Stanford. I did not have a medical degree. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. And so I, so I stay in bed for days. I mean, days I stopped eating and drinking anything because I didn't want to get up to go to the bathroom because the pain was so grotesque yeah. that I just carried it on my chest laying down mm-hmm. and my kids would like need me. And I'd say, I can't get out of bed. Wow. And so finally I went into his office and he didn't see me. He had his physical therapist look at my arm and she splinted it. And then she sent me home. And so I I left that office thinking to myself, oh, oh, and by the way, she told me that I had overused it. So now in my head, I've overiced it. That's my fault. I've overused it again. Now I'm causing myself harm. Right. And so about a week after that, I'm still in bed. I'm still now I'm, my hair is thinning and I'm losing weight. And I'm, I finally say to my husband at the time, I said, I've got to go see him. So we go in and he does no x-ray, but I'm not paying attention to that. Cause when you're in such extreme pain, all you know, is you want to get out of pain and you just listen to whatever right. you're not like making n- mental check marks. Like, does this make sense? You're in grotesque pain. Just get me out of pain. Yeah. And so he says to me, you have this thing called RSD, which means your brain is telling your limb. And in this case, it's my right arm. There's pain and swelling, but really it's just a misfire. Mm. So I'm going to send you to uh, a pain management doctor and see what she says. Great. Okay. So I go down to her office and she concurs with his diagnosis. So now I've had two MDs tell me that I have this thing called RSD. Yeah. And now they put me on pain medication, which at the time I was, I had to take the pain was, it was unimaginable. Yeah. And so I, I start taking the medication and they send me to this physical therapist way far away from their office. Another sign that they're trying to get rid of you, <laughs> but I didn't, again, I didn't recognize it. And so I go to physical therapy because my doctor says to me, because you have this thing called RSD, you have about six months to get as much movement in your wrist as possible. And after six months, it will lock up. Mm. And I'm really like intense. Like I'm a really type A personality determined, (laughs) obviously. So I'm going to physical therapy every single day of the week. Over my birthday, my son's birthday, holidays, it doesn't matter. I'm going to physical therapy because I'm going to get as much, I'm going to get my wrist back. In the meantime, every day I'm going to physical therapy, I'm dripping in tears. Mm. because the pain was so intense. And at that point I'd given up on the pain medication because one, it was totally affecting my stomach. And I was always like dizzy and I wasn't really cognitive, you know, being very focused. And the other thing is I didn't want to be dependent on pain medication. Yeah. And the last part of it, it wasn't completely taking the pain away. So I was like, well, I'm in pain anyway. I don't want to take these narcotics and it's making me fuzzy and I'm not able to do what I need to do. So months into this thing, a piece of metal pops out of my arm. One of the original suture, like where the suture was, it never closed. This Mm. is like three or four months into this. The the surgical site was still opening. Duh, that's like an immediate sign of infection. So I go to his office and he says to me, how do I know that you didn't make up that story? Because I didn't bring the metal with me. So like two days go by. And I, another piece of metal starts oozing out of my wrist and I, and I record it because now this guy thinks I'm a liar. And I think to myself, am I making this up? I question my own cognitive abilities. Right. Yeah. And I think maybe I'm crazy, right? My brain is misfiring and saying that there's pain and swelling in my arm, but there's not. 
So this whole manipulation, this whole bully thing goes on for months. I finally get up enough courage because at that time of my life, I had no self-esteem. I finally get up, up enough courage with some encouragement from my friends to go see somebody else. I go see this next doctor. He takes one x-ray of my wrist and every bone in my wrist is broken. Wow. So every single day that I was going to physical therapy, my, my bones were breaking. I had no cartilage in my wrist because it had be, been eaten away. I had an infection the whole time. Wow. And the infection was traveling up my arm. So I was in surgery immediately yeah. to dig out as much infection as possible. And then they stuck a pick line in my arm for home healthcare antibiotics for I think eight weeks. Yeah. So throughout that whole process, right, you talk about one, physically, it was painful, but two, emotionally, it was painful then, but it was even probably more so after the fact when you realize all of the loop that had been going on. And eventually, they have to do I think you mentioned earlier, but use the wrist. Yeah, yeah, which is game over. You have no function. There's no wrist. I don't have a wrist. Um, They, they re they put cadaver bones in there. They put a cadaver Achilles tendon to make it look like I have a wrist, but there's no function. Hmm. And, and at the time I didn't realize I'd be in permanent pain. That never occurred to me. Um, But it, it was, I was mad at myself. Hmm. My initial reaction was how did you let this happen to yourself? Why didn't you go see somebody sooner? Yeah. But, and I've talked to my current arm doctor about that for the last eight years. And he's not all the time, but I've, I've talked to him about it a fair amount. And he's, well, he says to me all the time, you did nothing wrong. Right. And he taught me that when you're in this incredible pain, you'll listen to anything. Oh. And so you didn't see the signs because they weren't available for you. And when you're bullied like that, it's hard to recognize it. Of course, looking back, it's so simple to see, but when you're in it and you're being bullied, it's really hard to recognize well, and I think there's a lot of transferable um, realities to that, right? And a person may not say that about a health condition. They might say it about a relationship, right? Man, I was in this relationship and oh yeah, gosh, I had so many friends on the outside that saw, you know, get the heck out of here. But when you're in it, right, you're emotionally invested in it. It doesn't seem the same way. And I think to your point, there's a lot of a lot of takeaways from that of, you know, one, you know, be introspective, but two, gosh, can I surround myself with people that can help me even see that sooner? Because like you mentioned, you talk to a few friends and they said, well, maybe try this doctor. Right. And sure enough, right. you go there, they give an x-ray and you're like, well, <laughs> this could have been done six months ago. Right. And it would have saved my arm if I had done that. Yeah. But, and then people were telling me to see a second opinion, including mm. my mother. And I just was like, he's the best doctor in town. Because I had other voices from outside people saying, he's the best doctor in town. No need to go see a second opinion. So I had these conflicting voices and I wasn't listening to mine at all. So in your story, we wish we could say that was the end of health scares, but you're traveling, you're taking a shower and that kicks us into the next health scare. So I'm up in New York City because ultimately my arm was fused in New York City at HSS, which is an incredible hospital. It's called Hospital for Special Surgery. Hmm. And oftentimes when you have mistakes made with your health, other doctors won't take the botched jobs. Right. So fortunately, I found a really compassionate, nice arm doctor in New York and he fused it. And I had flown back to Dallas and I'd come back for my six week post arm fusion. 
And at that time, I'm in this hotel room just thinking to myself, how am I going to live the rest of my life with no wrist on my right arm? How am I going to take care of my family? How am I going to drive? How am I going to cook? I had no idea. I didn't right. know what the reality looked like. Yeah. And I'm in the shower and I, and for months and months and months, for seven months, I had a cast on my arm, which I still did. And so all I would do when I was trying to shower was pour liquid soap over my shoulder and let it wash my body. Yeah. So I'm in this hotel room and there's no liquid soap. And so I, I look at this bar of soap and I say, okay, well, I'm going to have to make do. And so I wash my left breast and I immediately found a lump on the, I'm really on the surface of my breast. So imagine if I had been able to wash my breast months before, Right. it would have been diagnosed so much sooner. And so I, yeah, I immediately, you know, notice this. I go to my doctor's appointment. I get home two days later and three days later, I'm diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer. So unimaginable. unimaginable. Yeah, I was going to say, talk to me about the emotional state. I mean, I'm sure it's even hard to recall all the feelings you were feeling, but talk about that emotional state at that moment. I mean, shoot, two years ago, you feel like life is great, right? I mean, I've got yeah. this picture perfect thing. Two years later, I've been battling this wrist surgery for a long yeah. time. I have no function anymore. And now I'm finding out that I have aggressive breast cancer. Well, I couldn't understand how I had gone from being a thriving mother, self-proclaimed athlete to now a sickly woman needing constant care. Yeah. And, my, and my physical beauty was about to be completely decimated. Yeah. I was going to lose my hair to chemotherapy. I had already lost so much weight because of the infection. Now I have scars everywhere. You know, my arm, I'm going to have scars on my chest. And I had no idea what that would look like or what that would happen. And, and so I, I quit. I just said, and again, at that point, I had no self-esteem. I was yeah. so dependent on society's accolades and my external beauty and how I presented myself to society. And if all that's gone, who am I? Right. I'm nothing. Mm. I'm nothing. That's what I would tell myself. You're nothing. Wow. And so obviously there was great despair in those beginning, the beginning month. And the other thing was, and of course I'd been bullied for a full year. And the other thing was I had to postpone chemo. Well, my doctors had to postpone chemo because they, my arm had just been grafted. Mm, and yeah. so now I have an aggressive form of cancer that we can't treat because of the stupid arm situation. Yeah. And I'm like, what have I done? Right. This whole like self-blame, this whole like victim mentality. And it took about a month. But once I got out of the, the victim mentality, I started to slowly shift. And a couple things took place. One, I had a ton of people show up for me. Yeah. And that gave me solid footing. Those people loved me. They cared about me, even without the external beauty. So if they see something inside of me, then why can't I? I need to find that. Yeah. So, and they also showed up and said, once your story is, once you're healthy, which I never imagined that I would get through it, then you have a responsibility to share your story with other people. And so I thought, wow, would anybody really care about this story? And so I started to build some self-confidence in myself. And then I think the last piece of that, at that time, I started to not focus on the outcome. I had no idea if I was going to get through cancer or not. What I could only focus on was showing up courage for myself that day. Yeah. And if I was able to show courage for myself that day, it didn't matter what the outcome was but I ended up showing courage for my friends, from my family, and that started to multiply. Yeah. 
It started to multiply in my life with my self-esteem and it started to multiply in my community and with my own children. Mm. And so I started to build this foundation of, okay, courage today. That's it. Just take today. And then I started to change the voices in my head. I wasn't calling myself pathetic. I wasn't calling myself less than anymore. And every time I said those things in my head, because they don't just go away. Every time I said those things in my head, I stopped it. I changed it with another affirmation, which I may not have believed at the time, but ultimately it sunk in. And so if you ask me now, I have an unstoppable self-esteem. Nobody can shatter it. It is completely built on my faith and is completely built on concrete. Yes. All right. So we're going to dive into these things. So (laughs) the first thing I want to dive into in this really resonated with me when I heard you say it and was, you know, I, I knew I had friends, but I felt like I had used up the token from them. Right. I had asked for help once. I didn't want to keep going back to the well and, you know, taking more tokens. I, you know, Hey, I, you used your one token on me. I'm good now. And self-admittedly, I'm one of the worst people ever to ask for help. Like I, I, I will help you anytime you need it, but I, I don't like to ever ask for help. It's my ego. Right. Uh, right. But right. when you do, it's amazing how many times people are just ecstatic to step in and be able to help you any way they can. Talk about that feeling that you got from, or the mindset you had on not wanting to ask for help, but then the feeling you got when you saw people show up in a big way. Well, it goes back to your self-esteem. And so if you're not asking for help, it's because you feel like you're not worthy of the help, or you might be afraid. Another part of it is you might be afraid of rejection. So it's either pride and ego or a sense of rejection that you're afraid of. Stop calling me out. No, I'm just kidding. I was both. Same. I was I was super prideful yeah. and I was super afraid that they were going to reject me. Anybody, yeah. my whole family, my husband, my kids, my friends. And so I was so timid about asking for help. But when they kept showing up, they would say to me, What can we do? And I didn't know, right? I hadn't, I was I was the only one that had ever been diagnosed with cancer in my group of friends. I was 41 years old. And so we kind of learned, you know, how to help me over the course of time. And through that learning, I let go of that pride and that ego and Mm. that fear of people saying no to me because I was building my self-esteem. One, they were building it, helping me build it too, as well. But I was building it because I was getting to know myself and I was getting to know the real me, the one, the inside. And I was asking myself important questions. Like, what do you like to do? You know, even if I was like on the bathroom floor throwing up from chemotherapy, I'd sit there and I'd talk to myself. What do you like to do? I don't know. What do you think you like to do? I like to play tennis. Okay. Now we have something to start with, right? Yeah. And it was that positive self-talk that, that getting to know me, that I started to fill my voice up with more positivity and less criticism and less shame and more faith and more footing underneath me. And so I became unstoppable, but it was over, you know, it, it took me 15 months to get through chemotherapy. I'd 28 rounds. 28, yeah. And to be honest with you, I probably needed all 15 months to rework my self-esteem. Yeah. Now you talked about earlier, you know, kind of affirmations, right? Positive uh, self-talk. And I think you, you mentioned something really important and that is you need to talk positively to yourself. However, our brain sometimes doesn't believe what we're telling ourselves, right? Hey, you're this. 
if I'm not there yet, my brain may not even believe it yet. And right. I think you can, you can tweak that and you can help your brain believe it. If you say, I'm not this yet, but I'm in progress, right? Or I'm becoming this, right? Um, you know, someone that maybe their goal is to, to lose weight, to get in better shape. I'm, I may be not in my best shape yet, but I'm in progress, right? I'm working towards that. And that becomes easier to believe and it's bite-sized. Talk about the positive affirmations you shared with yourself and how you kind of gain that confidence over time. Well, you know, it does take a long time to unwind 40 years of self-criticism. <laughs> yeah. Time. And to set yourself up. Like if somebody listened to this podcast and said, okay, well, I'm going to say, when I say to myself, I'm not worthy, I'm going to say I am worthy. Mm. And after a couple of days, if somebody says, well, it's not working for me, I'm going to give up. It's going to take months. Yeah. And, and you need to know that. But I would just replace all the, the negative thoughts and the self-criticism would come. And I would literally turn it to the opposite way. Mm. If I said, you're stupid, which I often said to myself in my brain, you're only a model. You're not worth anything. I'd say, okay, I'm going to take that thought captive. I'm smart. I'm intelligent. And to be honest with you, it was embarrassing. Even within my own self, I would say to myself, God, that sounds so bad. That sounds so odd. Because you're so used to the other talk. But once you start creating different language in your brain for yourself, you can start to take some, you can start to believe it. Yeah. And, and I love it. It's, it's baby steps, right? Yeah. But if you start to listen and take those thoughts captive, because sometimes people can't even hear it. Right. It's just constant negativity and they don't even hear it. It's just so normal for them. And so once you just really pay attention to, okay, what am I saying to myself in my inner voice? And you stop that criticism and you replace it with, I, I'm worthy. And after that, I would say to myself, God, that sounds so weird, but I surrender to that. Mm. I'm smart. Oh, that sounds so funny. I surrender to that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and I also think you said it, uh, you have negative self-talk in your head, but you usually don't say it out loud. Right. And totally. I, I, I don't say to myself, gosh, Phil, you're not capable of that. But sometimes in my head, I think it, but there's power sure. in saying it out loud to yourself in the flip, right? Hey, sure. when you hear your inner mind talking to itself, hey, say the, yeah, the opposite yeah. of that out loud, the positive of that out loud. And I think there's a lot of, you know, power that comes from that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do talk out loud sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I'll give you a silly example because it's so important. All self, all negative self-talk. I play tennis. By the grace of God, I'm able to with my right arm being fused. And so when I, I hit the ball weirdly a couple months ago, and I literally said out loud, you suck. And I stopped, I stopped the mm. whole game. And I thought, wow, I haven't, I don't remember that negative self-talk because I've eliminated it. Yeah. But it, man, it came up right away. <laughs> and I stopped myself and I said, no, you don't suck. You're a very good tennis player. And it was that easy for me to switch it, but it was years of changing the cassette tape of negative self-talk to positive self-talk. And, and by the way, I'm on, I'm on, I have a presence on social media and, and the bigger the presence, the more haters you get. If somebody says something that isn't aligned with, you know, kindness, it doesn't even phase me. It doesn't even, it's their heart, not mine. Yep. And when you can release that pride and that ego and just, and not the non-judgment, you're kind of free. Yes, that is a very important point. 
Now, not everyone listening is a person of faith, but you brought up, you know, your relationship with your faith and yours wouldn't be the first story where it took losing a lot of those things that we would call idols, right? A lot of those things that we really highly valued to be taken away or really diminished for the opportunity to have a relationship with God or Jesus, uh, to to take yep. root with us right because well when when everything's going really well I, i'm kind of the king of this castle right sure. i don't i don't need help but when things aren't going so well it's like well dang it now now i need some help talk about that relationship for you and how that came to be and you know maybe even if you had had a you know faith life before but this was the thing the catalyst to really have it i guess take full bloom inside of you well many of those days where i was on that bathroom floor throwing up I, I realized that those, the material things and the, and the beauty wasn't getting me through chemotherapy yeah. and my friends would show up and, and talk about God. And I, I was raised Catholic. And so I kind of left my faith for a while. Cause that was, for me, it was very shaming in Catholicism. Yeah. When I went back to building, rebuilding my life, I really did build it on faith because God's voice, it, my measure changed. I went from trying to be in control to just saying, okay, let go and let God. And that became my mantra. And it wasn't, it wasn't because of lack of effort. Like everything that I've done since my diagnosis was a lot of effort on my part, but I believe that through faith and the power of prayer that, that God will sustain me and he will help me get to these, get through roadblocks, but also get to these things that I'm trying to accomplish, which is inspiring people and and sharing the story. If I was dependent on society's accolades and the likes and the comments and the money, then I would be stuck in that low self-esteem for the rest of my life. Because I can't depend on society. They don't give a shit about me. Mm. I can't suspend, I, I can't expect social media will sustain me. That's a false idol. Yeah. That's fleeting. And that's not, again, that's, that's not a determinant in my life. My measure is with God. And if I go to bed at night with a good measure with God, then I feel peace in my life. I'm not pushing my religious beliefs on people. Yeah. I'm sharing how I got through it and take what you want and, and dismiss whatever you don't. Everybody finds a way to get through, hopefully finds a, finds a different footing than being dependent on society. Because look around, society isn't nurturing you. Society isn't upholding you. What is? And for me, it was my faith in God. Yeah. And I think the piece I would highlight there that um, stuck out as you were talking is there's a difference between a religion and a relationship, right? Uh, You know, there's plenty of religion out there, but it's really when you have a relationship with God that that can really start taking uh, root in you and you can really start saying, yes, this is what my rock is, right? This is what I'm building my, my life on now, or go ahead, go ahead. Can I give you a little story? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Um, obviously I'm very passionate about this. Um, two years ago, and maybe you were going to bring this up when, uh, COVID hit, I was, had breast implants. My chest was perfect. I live in Miami. I loved wearing bathing suits. And I woke up one day and I had a major infection in my left breast. Mm -hmm. So I go to the hospital and I'm there. I'm on antibiotics. There's nobody in the hospital except me, a couple other people on floor seven. 
And, but if you were in the hospital during March of March 25th of 2020, <laughs> you're sick because yeah. they wouldn't keep you. Right. A month goes by, I'm home and I go, my, this infection shows up again and I go back into the emergency room. I go back to the hospital. They keep me for five days. They send me home with antibiotics and they're like, you're good. You're done. A month and a half goes by and I am traveling. I get home and there's a hole in my chest oozing out green pus. The infection had never gone away. It was just brewing inside of my chest cavity. So I go back to the hospital. I have an emergency excavation of my chest, which by the way, I loved because after right. you have mastectomies and they take out the breast tissue, at least I had an opportunity to have implants. That's what I thought. Yeah. So they excavate my breast cavity and now I'm concave and I'm in the hospital alone. Nobody's allowed to be in there because we're right in the beginning of the pandemic. And I've, and doctors are coming in and they're saying to me, you know, they're taking out the dressing and they're like, do you want to see this? And I said, no, I'm going to mm. wait to see what happened to me when I'm home with somebody that loves me. Mm. The whole time I was there, if I hadn't been super faithful, I would, it would, I don't know what I would have done because it's that extreme duress, right? Where you find your true, um, like what holds you? Yeah. And so when I got out of the hospital, the physical pain again was so tremendous. And it took me several months to go in my closet and try to figure out like, what can I wear now? I have a different, completely different body. Right. And I, somebody on social media said to me, were you born a man or a woman? And I was like, wow, <laughs> because here I was looking at my body, not no prosthetic on just flat and wearing tight fitted clothes going, I'm good. I'm, I, I am made in God's image. I'm mm. perfectly made in God's image. Now I may not look like other women anymore, but mm. that's okay because I'm made in God's image. And that, that was my self-esteem, yeah. but here, here was somebody in society saying to me, no, 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 you don't fit in. Mm. You don't look like society. You don't look like a woman. Wow. Now, if I hadn't rebuilt my self-esteem on faith, that would have shattered me. Yeah. I went from losing my chest to calling up my modeling agency and saying, I want to come back. And they were like, what do you mean? I go, well, this thing happened during COVID my chest and I kind of need to show you. And I was like, this is an opportunity for me to make other people who've gone through this disaster, yeah. not so alone in their pain. Cause I'm going to show up on the runway and I'm not even a runway model, yeah. but I've got a platform as a model, as a print model. And I can figure out a way to learn how to do the runway. And man, I'm, I walked in New York Fashion Week and now I'm walking in Miami Fashion Week. And I've taken this tragedy yeah. and said to other women, this does not paralyze me and it shouldn't paralyze you. And let's hear me roar. I'm doing it for them. Mm, I love it. To your point, you have a platform, right? And this is an opportunity for you to share your story. And there's so many people that this is impacting and going to continue to impact. And to not only uh, share your story, but you decide, I'll write a book about my story. So talk a little bit about your book. And uh, once again, we've talked probably about a lot of the content of the book today. It'll go much more in depth. So go get the book, but talk a little bit about that and how that idea came to be. Well, because these women who stood by me and shored me forward during this illness, this two seasons of illness, really three, there was one before the arm. And, and they kept reminding me that 
even though it's season after season of illness, this will shift. And they said to me, you have a responsibility to share the story with other people. Like we're shoring you forward. You can shore other people forward. And so I thought the best way that I can do that is to, sh- to write a book. Yeah. And it was almost like a love letter to my friends. And it was really modeling what female relationships should look like, mm. how we should stand up for each other, how we should come together to change lives. In fact, they absolutely saved my life. And if we can do that, how many lives can we save? And so I wrote a fictional depiction of my life and really very vulnerable. Like it's not very flattering, but I, I decided that I didn't want to show the highlight reels because if I just went out into the public and said, oh my gosh, I had all these women show up for me and look at, look at my life. That's the lie. That's only a partial story. But if I say to them, I, I almost died. I, my self-esteem was terrible. I had many thoughts of suicide. I had, and you bring the whole story together and then people go, oh gosh, I don't feel alone. Mm. That, and, and that's when you change lives. And so the book was my first platform to share my story. And then I became a speaker and my, my book was very well received because I think people needed a story like that. There's so many people that are affected by breast cancer. And when I was going through treatment, I, I couldn't find a fictional story about it. I found a lot of self-help books and people gave me amazing books, but I wanted to read a story. I wanted to read about the good, the bad, and the ugly and not a medical journal. Right. Yeah. And so I felt I had an opportunity. And if I was, if the book was going to be popular, great. If it wasn't, it didn't matter. I just wanted to help as many people as possible. And then I went on to social media and I, you know, opened up accounts and people were listening and I was showing my life, the very vulnerable parts of my life. Yeah. And, and then in 2020, when this happened to me, I think people were like, oh gosh, not her. She's been through so much. And they just, they cheered me on and they powered me through it as well, because people can be champions for each other, even on social media. Yep. And so I think I just started with the book and it became the speaker and became, and then I went back to school and I started to become a better writer and the socials. And I think it all just created this package of altruism, which kind of has defined my life over the last six years. So I get every day to wake up and serve and lead and inspire until the day, until the moment I go to bed. And so if tomorrow, if tomorrow, tomorrow is not promised to anybody, but if tomorrow I'm taken, I'm good. I've lived an amazing life. I get to help people who wouldn't sign up for that. <laughs> yes. Well, what I have to just give you encouragement on in, in that last little bit that you shared is um, a friend of mine shared it to me this way. He said, Phil, we admire people based on what they've been able to accomplish in their life. Right. You know, you see kind of the highlights, the things they've done, but you connect with people on their vulnerabilities. Right. And their transparency. And um, you, you have both. Right. You've done some amazing, phenomenal things. You have more to do. Um, at the same token, you're starting to really share, you know, all the emotional side, but yet the important things that have gotten you through the tough times to be where you're at today and view uh, serving as, as the greatest gift and blessing. Well, I mean, that brings you joy. Mm. I've had a great happiness in my life, but I didn't ever, like I said, in the beginning, it's a great way to close out the beginning of this interview where I said, happiness is great, but joy is a totally different level. And that comes from serving. Yes. Well, Christine, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story, your journey, and everything that you've uh, gone through, accomplished, and are continuing to do. And uh, there's no doubt you got to come back on the show probably two years from now. Uh, we'll talk about all the amazing things and pivotal moments that you've done uh, up to that point and uh, the great things you're going to continue to do. Oh, thank you so much for sharing my story. I hope it helps as many people as possible. <laughs>